Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast, episode number one. Our first attempt at doing anything with a podcast from your family folks at Ronin Safety and Rescue. Oh, did you miss me? Yeah. When I was away, did you hang my picture? Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. We're pleased to have you. Ronin's comprised of a bunch of slightly deranged individuals that wander the globe in search of that elusive rescue unicorn. We compete, we train, we do rescue work. We're looking for that end-all, be-all system. You know, the one, the one that's going to do everything for you. We haven't found it yet, but we found a bunch of interesting things along the way, and we just wanted to share that with all of you out there. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to podcast number one. These podcasts are primarily going to be for Ronan staff about different procedures, different equipment that we use in order to standardize people. We've got people from Nanaimo, British Columbia to Picto, Nova Scotia, and all places in between. Getting it out by email or some other form of communication has proven difficult. So we're going to try to get with the 21st century and go with a little rescue cast. This will be useful to everybody out there, though, that does rescue. We're going to be talking about different procedures. We're going to be talking about different equipment that gets used, why we use it. And we're not the end-all, be-all. We didn't sit here and invent the wheel. If you guys are doing something else, the girls are doing something else out there that you feel is better, drop us a dime, drop us a line. We'd love to hear it. I mean, there's a million ways to skin this cat. Because we have different levels of staff in the organization that do OHS consulting, do training, some do industrial safety training, some do hazmat, some are strictly on the rescue teams. These rescue casts are going to start with basic concepts. They're going to break it right down so that everybody's on the same page moving forward. Once again, we're going to start with gear. We're going to move to operational issues and then on to professional development as time moves on. So to start with, we're going to start with our quick response pack or QRP. Now, first of all, our QRP is not a first aid kit for the site. I know a lot of guys and girls out there that grab the QRP, they flush something out of a guy's eye on site, you know, they bandage up something. It is not designed for a first aid kit. If we're doing first aid on a site, you need to grab one of our first aid kits that's designed for that. If you're working out of BC, for instance, there's a double Nanook case, two Nanook cases, say OFA3 kit on them. That is what you take if we're actually going out and working on a site. The QRP is a no-duff response bag for our staff to use in case we need to rescue a patient. It is designed for critical interventions to the EMR level of training. If you're less than EMR, you can still use the majority of the bag. There's only a couple items in there that have an EMR level attached to it. Once again, it is for our staff to use in a rescue. We'd hate to have you running first aid scenarios on a site, only then to reach into the bag to use it during an actual rescue to not have something there. Talk to your project manager, obviously, if you got problems on a site in regards to first aid. So first of all, the QRP. Primarily, it's in a Contero Longbow Emergency Operations Pack. There's a couple of Tad Gear Fast Pack light speeds out there, primarily on the East Coast. Toronto still has a Traverse Rescue Kigali Pack. It's an old school one. We are a company. We're not the government anymore. We can't sit there and just keep buying stuff as we'd like to. So we do have to wear the old things out first. The Traverse Rescue Pack's been in service for seven years now and is still going strong. The equipment's in a backpack, so it can easily be deployed into a rescue scene. It's easy to carry if you're on rope or just as easy to toss into a confined space in front of you if you're going in to do a con space rescue. The packs that we have 
we found to be the most durable out there. We're always willing to look at other options, but as of right now, they are primarily the most durable. There are six QRPs located around the country. One in, or sorry, there's four in BC, one in Manitoba, one in Toronto, and one in Moncton. So the equipment that we're carrying in our QRPs. First of all, there should be two combat application tourniquets, cat or soft T tourniquets. Now this is a critical intervention pack. This is not designed to sit there and do long-term first aid on someone. Once we get someone off of rope, out of a space, out of a hole, out of a trench, off the water, whatever that rescue situation may be, then we're looking at using site first aid equipment. We're looking at using the public 911 system that should be activated as the rescue plan gets enacted. This here is an intervention pack in the space. It is to do critical interventions to save you, save the patient, get them out of the space. So hence the combat application style tourniquet. This is also a good idea when to use the cat. You know, our protocols deal with our HEMPA, DABC, etc. That's your standard street medic stuff. You know, hazards, environment, mechanism, injury, number of patients, additional resources, delicate spine, airway, breathing, circulation. I did say I was going to break this down. In rescue, this may not work that well. Many police departments, military teams use the MARCH acronym, where major bleed is first. Major bleed, airway, respiration, uh, circulation, and then H, some people use head, some people use hypohyperthermia. depends on the team that you're playing with. And I'm not saying don't do your medical protocols, but if we get into a space, we're on a rope, and a patient has an arterial bleed, I'd go with the tourniquet first. Now think even of your hemp, your hazards, your environment. We want to clear those hazards for us. We want to clear those hazards for the patient. No one wants to be working in a two-foot diameter space with some guy with an arterial spurt going at your face. That's a hazard to us. It's going to get all over our gear. It's going to make the rescue more difficult. It's going to make expose the people outside of that rescue to more bloodborne pathogens. So, you know, a little bit of common dog here is going to be required on some of this. And that's why these sort of things are in this kit. This isn't S-March. It's not something we're going to try to hold on or tie off so that, you know, it accidentally gets rolled out because we're pulling the guy out of a hole. These are devices that are designed for this type of application. Now extend there, pocket valve mask. There is no BVMs, no bag valve masks in these kits. We are not doing heavy-duty first aid in a space nine times out of ten. I mean, we're not going to start artificial respiration or CPR the majority of the time in a space. I mean, we always have to prefix that with the majority of the time. You're right, we may go into a totally benign space that's got nothing wrong with it and the person's had a medical condition and maybe at that point the team lead says no we're going to sit here and do CPR until emergency services show up and then try to do a handover on a quick you know rescue out of the hole nine times out of ten though this is like what they talk about in uh you know what's the first rule of rescue medicine do the rescue a lot of the times get them out of that space so then we have the proper ability to work on them we're not going to be running AED protocols on the person's line in three inches of water in the bottom of a hole, things like this. Another reality in rescue, especially in confined space, is the atmosphere and the geography are going to take precedent in packaging the patient and patient comfort. And this is real backwards to a lot of street medicine that a lot of us have come from, whether it be fire departments, whether it be paramedics, where packaging the patient and patient comfort is paramount. Here, 
we can get into convoluted geographies inside of a space, multiple layers to a space, small diameter holes where you're talking 18 inch or so diameter to get out. We're not going to get spine boards out of these holes. We're not even going to get skeds out of these holes. A lot of them, we're going to be doing some sort of half person harness or some sort of spec pack, you know, one arm high kind of thing. Those are not conducive a lot of times to proper patient packaging. And so in regards to this, we really got to think about that, about how we want to deal with a fracture or deal with a spinal management issue because it may not be practicable to get them out of that space or off of that rope with that in play. In the kit, we've got three OPAs and two NPAs with lube. And we're talking average size here. We're not doing a lot of pediatrics on work sites. I mean, you've got to be 18 to get on most of the sites we get to. And we're trying to go a bit light and fast. So we are cutting some stuff out of these kits. Why an OPA and an NPA? And the NPA, yeah, I get it. We're talking an EMR level skill here. So we package our patient and now we're going to roll him upside down or put him up on his feet or whatever the case may be to get them out of this confined space or off of this rope or out of this trench. How's our OPA going to stay in? We found that NPAs work a lot better in this case. Yes, you can tape them in. There is tape in these kits. Put both in. We're trying to secure an airway here in a situation where we're not going to be able to go hands-free all the time. We're going to have to use our hands to protect ourselves as the rescue we're getting out. We may be hauling rope. We may be moving the patient over top of different edges or angles. And that airway is going to have to hold at some point on its own. So OPA, NPA. Three times speed straps for strapping limbs to a body in case of a break, bandage on a significant bleed. Remember, bandaging a bleed may be a worthwhile intervention if it affects the rescue. And we're not even talking arterial here. If someone's got a steady leak and you're working underneath them, it might be better to take that two seconds and bandage that thing off. If nothing else, you can always use these speed straps on a conscious patient to strap hands together so they don't reach out. We all know this standard ploy, we're going down the stairs when we're doing street medicine. Same thing in a confined space or on a rope. If they can grab it, they're going to grab it. If we can strap their hands down, it just makes it a lot easier on our behalf. Miscellaneous gauze and dressings. These are for any bleeds that may interfere with your rescue. You may want to pad out something if you're splinting it. We're going to talk a little more about this later, but when we talk about rescue and we talk about packaging them in a space, we got to think about how long these patients are going to end up in this situation. Standard rescue we kind of did, flew out to a remote site. We're doing rescues down by on a barge. There was a couple feet of water in the bottom of this barge. We had to fly in, then take a boat over to where the barge was. So to haul them out of that space, get them on the top, package them up, get them down off the top of the barge into the boat, get them from the boat to the aircraft, and then the 40-minute flight to local medical aid. What are we talking here? Conservatively, an hour and 15 before we walk in the door until they're even seeing treatment from a hospital. It's an hour and 15 in that packaging device. So, you know, a lot of this miscellaneous gauze and dressings can be used to pad out some of those hollows, pad out some of those sharp points, because they're going to be in this kit for a long time on a lot of these situations. Three times pressure dressings. Obviously, once again, for bleeds, you can see a common trend here. They can also be used for securing the hands. One times pair of scissors, kind of self-explanatory. S-March. Here we are talking before about S-March in regards to, you know, using the uh, tourniquets instead. I mean, it's primarily an airway management tool in our kits. It is usually 
for airway management and open chest wounds. Our kits, we have tourniquets. We also carry Asherman chest seals. This is still an old school backup just in case we do require it. And I mean, the reason we do bring it is we start talking about other violations of medical protocols here. So what happens if we have an industrial accident in our space? And you got to think about this with these quick response packs. How do we get them out? What if they're impaled on something? We may not have the opportunity to cut somebody out of something. We may have to remove it. There may not be a choice. Yeah, great. Okay, we're going to cut this out, but we're still getting them out of an 18-inch diameter hole. That rebar ain't going to fit out of there anyways. So we've got to carry some extra stuff. We can tie that off with S-March, or you know, we may just have to pat it right out or uh, secure it right out. These medical scenarios that are found during these technical rescues can lead to some true dilemmas. It's worthwhile going through some of these lessons learned from people like the PJs, Canadian SARTEX, fire departments, and some of the dilemmas that they've come up to and some of these building collapses. Look at some of the books on the Oklahoma bombing, 9-11, the original Trade Center bombings, and the decisions that had to be made. And it really opened your eyes as to what you might require for some of these intervention kits. Miscellaneous sets of nitrile gloves. Obviously, we can wear these underneath our rope gloves to protect ourselves from bloodborne pathogens. One of the things on rescue standbys is we do have a bit of an advantage. We do know the patients nine times out of ten. We know who's working in the hole. We can maybe get some pre-medical information should that be required. Three times triangular bandages because what kit wouldn't be complete with a triangular bandage? Once again, worst case scenario, you can use it to tie hands together. You can use it to pad hollows. You can use it to pad sharp spots. A box of band-aids. Here I'm going, critical intervention. Everybody out there right now is doing the big forehead slap with their palm of their hand. we got to be reality about this too, or have some reality about it. If we cut ourselves, we want to bandage it up. We work at facilities like wastewater treatment facilities. We want to treat any cuts or wounds we get. And you know what? We need the band-aids on site. There doesn't a day goes by on a site where someone doesn't end up with a small cut that needs to get banded up. Miscellaneous telfa dressings or non-sticks. Once again, pretty self-explanatory. Three roller gauze, three crepes should be in the kits. Bandaging material, splinting material for a sprain or a break. Remember, getting a patient to a point that they can assist with their own rescue is often easier than us hauling them out of a space, rigging some real convoluted technical rescue system. So if we can support a sprain and they can help get themselves out of a hole or off of a rope or out of a dangerous situation without us having to go in and perform rope rescue or confined space rescue, yes, I get it. It's not as cool, but a lot of times it does make for a much better patient outcome. So once again, crepes, roller gauze. Sam splints, obviously for breaks and sprains. We've discussed worst case scenarios so far. We've talked about, you know, people impaled on objects and whatnot. But there's very likely that we could have a clean atmosphere and the injuries are not time sensitive and the rescue allows for it. Then patient injuries certainly dictate the scenario, much like any other medical call. You know, if we're looking at a four by four foot entrance into a space and the guy's broken his arm, there's nothing stopping us from taking that five minutes in a clean atmosphere and making sure that that's splinted properly, reduce further harm before we go and yard them out of that hole. Anything we can do for patient care is worthwhile doing. Stabilizing, protecting a break or a sprain will assist in pain management, likely increase in healing times, right? And with the SAM splints, 
if the space will allow, we can use it for some spinal immobilization as well. Next items in that should be in the kits, a fleece blanket, large, an emergency blanket, a space blanket, and a toque, watch cap. And I lump all of those together because this is basically our hypothermia kit, plus a cold pack or hot pack coming down later. But this is the hypothermia kit. You go back to that example I gave on the barge. We've got water in the bottom of that space. There's water in a lot of these spaces. A good eight months of the year in most of the locations we're working, it's cold in these holes. No matter what you're doing, a guy injured, a girl injured, lying on concrete, lying on metal, they're going to get cold. Once again, we speak of these rescue times. We want to do it quickly. Absolutely. We've got a wet patient. And even if we can get them out of a hole in 10 minutes, say we can beat emergency services. Great. They're still going to end up on an emergency services board. They're still going to end up on a ride to the hospital. And from time of injury to time that they're actually being treated in a a hospital setting, it's very likely going to be 30 minutes. And if they're soaking wet or they've been lying on cold ground, then obviously doing some sort of treatment for hypothermia is a must. And this is different than a lot of the street medicine guys are used to and girls are used to. When we're out there on the street, we're turning them over to BCS or we're turning them over to the hospital and we're leaving the patient there. A lot of folks that come from a wilderness SAR background hypothermia, hyperthermia is a little bit more of an issue. You're with your patients for longer times and it's got to start taking these things into consideration. Remember the SAR acronym LAST, locate, access, stabilize, transport. It's a SAR wilderness acronym, but it works just as well for the rescue, industrial rescue we're doing. We've got to locate our victim. And a lot of times in confined spaces, that can be difficult. We've worked on some very large spaces got to access them. That might be on rope. That might be through other convoluted holes or means. We have to stabilize that victim. That's where this first aid comes in. That's where this QRP is coming down to play. Then we need to transport. And that transport isn't just the cool rope part that we have. That transport is to definitive medical care. And we've got to think about that. We've got to prep the patient at the beginning to make sure that that outcome at the end is what we're looking for. Same with things like harness-induced pathology. The latest information on this is to get the patient to the ground as fast as possible. All we can really do is treat for shock. If we have advanced life support on scene, they obviously have other tools in their toolbox that they can start to use. However, we're treating for shock. That's really all we're going to be able to do. Once again, this hypothermia kit comes into play for that. Keeping the patient warm, keeping the patient dry. Once again, uh, onto what we've got in the kits. A rescue knife, self-explanatory. Rolls of tape. Okay, we should have a cloth, med tape, and duct tape in there. So three different types. Why? Because we might be taping hands together. We might be taping the edge of a, a sharp hole down in the bottom of the space that we couldn't see from the top in order to make sure our patient doesn't get dragged over it. We might be taping airways into place. So all of these things dictate that we may need to make sure we've got some tape with us. We can secure heads with it. Remember, it doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to work. Also in the kits, we're looking at uh, a patient extrication harness. Now we're moving to the CTOMS pocket seat. It's a great harness. It's lightweight. Heck, it could fit in the side of a cargo pocket. It lightens up the kits by a significant amount. 
Is it as sturdy as the heavy rubberized of a pencil triangle or a PMI type triangle device? No, not at all. But it is a lot lighter. And in reality, all it has to do is survive the rescue. And it'll do that. We've had some people come back and say, well, they're not certified. The Dyneema slings on the C. Tom's pocket is 22 kilonewtons. If you look at some of the things, like a Petzl Triangle, there is no NFPA stamp on it anyways. There isn't one on the PMI uh, version of the triangle. These are quick, hasty devices, harnesses, to get patients out when we don't have the ability to put them into some other type of spinal immobilization, like a SCED or even a SPEC pack. These are that true, we're in a tight space or we're down, this is an intervention, we need to get this person out and drag them out as fast as we can. That's what these little seat harnesses are for. And with that in mind, the CTOMS has worked out really well. Now, if you're going to suspend somebody in the CTOMS harness, the pocket, we have found grabbing a couple 120 slings, putting one under the back of the knees and one underneath the armpits to help seat the patient properly and clicking that into your master point of attachment is really a good thing to do and enhances some patient comfort. If you're in a confined space, though, feel free to clip the patient into it. Just drag them right down the, the aisle with it. If you shred it, you shred it. It is designed to have that occur to it. It is also a third of the price of the other ones, hence why we're moving to it, and it doesn't really matter if it gets destroyed. As well in these kits, two hot packs. Kind of goes with the hypothermia treatment. We also have two cold packs, swelling and heat stroke. We talk a lot about how cold these spaces are, but if you've worked in any of the steam pit rescue standbys that we've done, you'll know how hot these spaces can be. We carry a hard collar in the kit. Once again, if mechanism of injury requires it, we can collar our patient if geography allows. If we can't get them out with a collar, we can't get them out with a collar. Nine times out of ten, though, we can at least immobilize, even if we're moving the patient in other angles because of getting them out of the space. Should be a pen light in the kit. Extra flashlight's always good and when you've lost all your other ones on the way down to do this rescue, you can at least grab the pen light out of the bag. Two Asherman chest seals. We're moving to this over S-March and this is due to that self-draining valve on the Asherman chest seal. There's some other chest seals out there that have that self-drain valve. You know, I use the term Asherman because that's what we're carrying right now. I'm not trying to say one's better than the other at this point. This allows the rescuer to put that on and not worry about the patient position. We always look at when we're using the S-March, okay, we're going to tape one side open or leave one side open free of tape so it has the drain down. What happens now when we put these patients vertically or have to move them onto their right or left side in order to move them through a space or out of a hole? We don't have a chance now to go back and try to fix that tape, at least with the chest seals, the newer ones that are coming out. with this, They have the ability to drain, it's better patient care, better patient comfort. One times inclement weather cover. As well, I'll add with this, Ziploc bags and waterproof your stuff wherever. Make sure your dressings are waterproofed. I use the old Ziploc bags. It's an old military thing. They work really well. If uh, you're concerned about something sharp in there, you can always duct tape the outside of them. I had duct taped Ziploc bags that were in my kits for years in the military and still worked. Many of our jobs are in poor weather, whether that be blazing sun even or chucking rain. And these bags can get ruined, due, or the contents can be ruined because of the moisture in the air. 
if we're doing rescue in a hole that has water in it, we turf that bag in there, you're going to want the stuff to be waterproofed. At least, you know, like I say, the dressings and those types of things, make sure they're in a Ziploc bag. Even that weatherproof cover, we were on a job site for six months and just the sun on the top of the job site turned the outside of that backpack so brittle you start putting your fingers through it. That's what the, that uh, inclement weather cover is. Put that over it. If we pooch that, not a big deal. We'll get another one. We're looking at hemoclot dressings. And this next little bit here is some of the reasons why and why not. Uh, things we do and don't have in there. We're doing some tests with it right now. And we're just looking at training options with it and effectiveness of it in our environment. As mentioned, our environment has a tendency of being damp. If I had to count more times than not, I'd say 80% of the time, I'm getting wet doing confined space rescue. I'm not cooking myself. And as such, I was starting to think about the effectiveness of hemoclots in those environments. And that's something we're looking for more medical feedback on. Any of you people out there have any information on that, that would be great. And just as a training issue, can we get that training out to all of our people? That's why they're not in the bags yet. We are looking at them. O2 Entinox. As a policy at Ronin, we're not bringing oxygen or Entinox onto an actual rescue. We're not taking them into holes. We're not putting them up ropes. We'll start with the ropes. Obviously, these are pressurized cylinders. If we drop one from 100 feet, I really don't want to see what that's going to look like rocketing off down the road. So we don't use them at heights. Just a matter of policy. We're not saying don't have them on site. They can be part of the EMR or OFA kits or the site first aid kits. Absolutely. Once we get them to that site first aid kit and out of the danger zone, feel free to use it. We don't want to bring a pressurized projectile though, either into a space or up on rope. As we talk about into a space, Entinox. I mean, one of the protocols for the use of Entinox is the ventilation of your AM. Doing, using it in a confined space, add two and two here. If we have to ventilate an ambulance to use it, we're not using it in a hole. There's no need for all of us to get giddy on the rescue. O2, I mean, O2 is a flammable oxidizing gas. Do we really want to bring this into a space? Right now, we go with the answer of no. Yes, there are kits out there that defeat certain parts of it. We're not going there. We're just going to go with a policy. No oxygen, no Entinox on ropes or into holes. Once we get them to that safe first aid spot, by all means, let's use them. So that's the QRP. We're always interested in feedback once again on these kits. We're not saying this is the end all be all, but it's working for us right now. If you think something's missing, drop us a line. If you think something's redundant, let us know. That goes both for our staff and people out there on the street that are listening to this. Thanks for tuning in today at the Ronin Rescue Cast. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. As always, should you have any comments, concerns, or questions, just let us know. We're always looking for feedback. You can get us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at roninrescue.com. Now head on out there and rescue somebody.